Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 12, The First Exile. Last time, we conveniently stopped on day one of St. Athanasius Patriarchy in 328 AD and with several fires to be put away. The first was the Council of Nicomedia's decision to reinstate Arius and Constantine's blessing of that council. The second is the Miletian bishops and the Bishop of Alexandria that they elected. The Miletian bishops sent a delegation to Nicomedia to convince Constantine of their case, and there they were welcomed by the leading Arian bishop, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who, as we mentioned before, was the main religious advisor in Constantine court and the actual political power behind Arius. And as both shared the same enmity toward Athanasius, a powerful alliance was created. San Athanasius, for his part, was active as well. In the first two years of his reign, for the most part, he was touring Egypt, building relationships, and vitally cultivating monastic support. Politically, at Constantine court, two important developments occurred. The first, not long after the Council of Nicaea, Constantine went through his darkest chapters. His oldest son, from a prior marriage, Crispus, was blossoming into a capable and effective leader and was looked to as the heir apparent. But Constantine's current wife, Fausta, had children of her own and naturally desired that one of them, or all of them, inherit Constantine's throne. Thus, in 326 AD, Constantine ordered the execution of Crispus through the machination of Fausta. Two months later, either out of guilt or a realization that he was tricked by Fausta, he ordered her execution as well. We don't really know what were their crimes and how Constantine was tricked, or if he was even tricked, as both of their memories were damned and their names were wiped out from histories, and naturally, no first-hand accounts were written down. And here you have it. Our great Christian emperor have killed his most capable son and wife and left us a complicated legacy and three incompetent, possibly traumatized sons that will follow him in a few years. We should be careful in judging him too much so. This was a violent time, and by the nature of the job, men who rose to be emperors did not have mixed feelings about murder. If you weren't willing to chop a head every now and then, you probably should be in a different line of work. So, throw the first stone if you wish, but I'm not. Anyway, historians speculate that Helena's long trips in the Holy Lands, the widespread church building, and the postponement of the emperor baptism until the last few days of his life were all parts of his efforts to atone for these dark pages in his life. The second important political development is the dedication of the city of Constantinople in May 330 AD. Constantinople became the new capital and in time grew to be a magnificent city and a cultural center. Its patriarch would also grow in influence and play a very important role in church politics. For more on the city and how it transformed the Roman Empire, I recommend listening to the History of Byzantium podcast. But, as far as the Egyptians were concerned, the grain that used to go to Rome now went to Constantinople, 
and allowed the city to prosper and grow. So, as you can imagine, in the early stages of transforming Constantinople to an imperial capital, the Egyptian grain was a touchy subject that could easily trigger Constantine. Interrupt the grain and his beloved project fails. So let's keep that in mind as it will be an important factor in the story of San Athanasius, who by this time was finishing up his tour and on his way back to Alexandria, where during a stop in nearby Mariotis, a curious incident happened that became a focal point of contentions for the next 40 years. The incident had drawn inspired St. Athanasius becoming the Bishop of Alexandria, or probably at some point during the waning years of persecution or shortly after, another Alexandrian priest named Colossus started ordaining other priests, a highly unusual act that in effect meant that he's considering himself a bishop. His actions were limited, and unlike Arius, he wasn't very popular or politically connected, so it didn't generate a lot of controversy when he was condemned by a local council in Alexandria and his ordinations were invalidated. Nonetheless, Egypt is a big place, and in the 4th century, no one was keeping track of who's clergy and who's not. So probably outside of Alexandria, those priests continue operating as clergy as nothing happened. It is doubtful that they even knew that their ordination was invalidated, as it's not like someone can send them a mass email telling them to reapply for the job as they were a mix-up in HR. Anyway, one of those priests was a man named Ascarius, who was the priest for a house church in a small hamlet in Mariotis. On his way back to Alexandria, St. Athanasius sent one of his priests an assistant named Macarius to Ascarius' house church to summon him for a talk. But Ascarius was second bit, so Macarius told him to no longer act as priest. Ascarius was then not happy, and when he got bitter, he reached out to the militians and falsely accused St. Athanasius of sending Macarius to beat him up and wreck his house church. A serious charge that the Miletians and the Arians used repeatedly to attack St. Athanasius. When St. Athanasius wrote down his defense some years later after the incident, he included a written apology and a confession from Ascarius that he made false allegations, and adds that either way, legally, Ascarius was not a priest and his house was not a church. That's the side of the story if you decide to take St. Athanasius' own word as the source of truth. But, some modern historians speculate that the confession was obtained by violence and paints St. Athanasius in negative terms, because even so, legally speaking, the act was not violence against clergy or a church, it is still violence. Now, this would be a good time to remind everyone the relationship between religious and civil authority in the 4th century Roman Empire. As for some listeners with clear ideas about separation of church and state, it can be hard to imagine. Religious authorities were not only allowed, but expected to use the instruments of Roman civil law, such as imprisonment, confiscation of property, and exile, to keep the peace of church and the empire. The precedence was set by Constantine himself early in his reign, 
when he intervened in a church schism in North Africa and what came to be known as the Donatist heresy. So while to our modern ears a bishop employing strong arm tactics is unusual and questionable, in the 4th century that's normal operating procedures. The fact that St. Asenesius took the matter seriously and bothered to leave a detailed defense for future generations is a sign of his greatness and a vision as a historical figure. It would be like George Washington leaving a justification on why he owned slaves. Anyway, St. Asenesius' supporter at his time would more likely to fault him for not using violence to break up an illegal church operation than the other way around. With that said, let's go back to our story, where Eusebius of Nicomedia used the incidents of Ascarius to lodge a formal complaint against St. Asenesius to Constantine, and for good measure, added that St. Asenesius imposed the tax of land garments on Egyptian without the authority of the imperial government, and was a part of a conspiracy to assassinate the emperor. The Miletian also contended that St. Asenesius was below the canonical age of theory when he was elected bishop, and as such, his election is invalid. As a result, in early 332 AD, Constantine summons an Asenesius to the palace for a formal trial. After listening to both sides and seeing the evidence, Constantine clears an Asenesius of all wrongdoing, and St. Asenesius returned to Alexandria in Easter 332 AD to a hero's welcome who is victorious once again over the Aryans. Then he traveled to Libya, an Aryan stronghold, and consolidated the church authority there, which incensed both Arius and Eusebius of Nicomedia, and a new plan was hatched to get rid of him. The plan was simple. They enlisted a dissenting bishop named Arsenius and instructed him to disappear, while in the same time, the militian would write again to Constantine, accusing St. Asenesius of murdering him, and to kick things up a notch, using his dead body as part of witchcraft. Constantine, tired of their quarreling, kicked the matter to his half-brother and governor of the east, who was residing in Antioch, Syria. Then, probably through the machination of Eusebius, a decision was taken that the matter should be investigated by a council of bishops, rather than the civil government, and the council location was decided to be Caesarea where the other Eusebius, also an Arian, was in charge. A council in Caesarea would be very receptive to condemning St. Asenasius. So what does St. Asenasius do? He ignores the summit to the council and sends a deacon to track down Arsenius and eventually he finds out that he left Egypt and he's hiding in Palestine. St. Asenasius then writes his Constantine his finding. Constantine cancels the councils and vindicates Asenasius once more. You have to give it to them. The Aryan coalition was persistent, and Asenasius was the biggest obstacle that stood in their way to normalize their theology. Now, you may be wondering, what's the big deal? Just let Arius do his thing and you believe whatever you want to believe. And that would be 100% feasible if they were living in our western mostly secular role today. But not when your emperor right to govern is given by God, and religion starting to dominate all aspects of daily life. Not to mention 
Try and think like a theologian for a second, or a Christian missionary. If deep down in your heart you believe in a fundamental truth, you will fight for this truth with all your being. To prove the point, San Asanasius in his writing described how he brought a garment and divided it into pieces, proclaiming by the end that this is what Arius was doing to the body of Christ, i.e. the church. No doubt the Arians felt the same as well, that their theology was correct and Senesanesius was the problem. Either way, as I said in the prior episode, theologians don't compromise, especially Coptic ones, so something had to give. In a great show of persistence, the Miletian in Egypt, with the political support of the Arians in Constantine court, wrote to him again, complaining about St. Asanasius' tactics to keep them away from the church, and then wrote again, and again, and again, until finally, tired of the pestering, in 335 AD, Constantine orders that another council be held in Tyre, in modern-day Lebanon. This time, he explicitly orders St. Asanasius to attend, and appoints a former governor, a civilian, to supervise the council, to ensure some level of neutrality. So, St. Asanasius went with 48 of his bishops. None of the charges were really new, and nothing really stuck against St. Asanasius, except the Ascarius incident, where it was agreed upon that a commission of inquiry be sent to Mariotis to investigate the matter, and then send the report to the council for a decision. This was a strategic mistake from St. Asanasius and his bishops. You see, they were slightly outnumbered by their Arians' opponents, and when it came to picking who should be in the commission, all six members ended up being Arians, with some of them being converted to Christianity by Arius himself. So despite strong hints from the civilian supervisor of the council to proceed with fairness, the commission with Arian embassies went ahead and traveled to Egypt to investigate the matter. The same bishops in the council then traveled to the relatively nearby Jerusalem and dedicated the newly built magnificent Church of the Resurrection or Holy Sepulchre where Jesus' tomb is presumably at. By the time they returned from Jerusalem, the commission also returned from Egypt with their report. As expected by everyone, including St. Asenesius, the commission found St. Asenesius guilty of ordering the beating of Ascarius and the destruction of his house church. The council then moved to depose him as a bishop, admit Arius back to the church, and assign a new bishop to Alexandria. Unknown to them, in the middle of the night, St. Asenesius left Tyre and was on his way to Constantinople to talk directly to Constantine. The name of the new bishop have not survived, but some historians speculate that he could have been John Arshaf, the Miletian leader since Miletists have died, and the disputed bishop of Memphis, the old Egyptian capital. Upon realization that St. Asenesius have left, Eusebius of Nicomedia quickly concluded that he was going to Constantine, so he took five other leading bishops and tried to get there first. St. Asenesius ended up getting there first, but he had two big obstacles. The first, Constantine wasn't in the city. 
The second, even if he was, it's not like you can show up and meet the emperor anytime you like, even if you are the Bishop of Alexandria. Fortunately, Constantine was back within a week, and upon hearing the news, Senesinesis went to him while Constantine was riding his horse, not bothering to go through the necessary protocols. Due to the highly irregular nature of the meeting, Constantine refused to hear him, but Senesinesis persisted. So when Constantine finally broke in, Senesinesis asked him to be tried in front of him instead of the biased church council. Constantine agreed, and within few hours, Eusebius of Nicomedia shows up and realizes that Constantine just annulled the council decision and will try Senesinesis personally instead. What happens next was a brilliant Machiavellian move on the part of Eusebius. Knowing that Constantine have heard all of the council accusations before and have cleared Senesinesis, he threw them out of the window and came up with a completely new charge that he knew would move Constantine to action. So here we are, for the third and final time. Constantine on his throne, on one side is Asenesius, and a few of his bishops, and on the other, Eusebius, and a few of his bishops. Then Asenesius is readying himself for the usual accusations of violence and strong-arm tactics. But Eusebius mentions nothing of that sort, and calmly proclaims that St. Asenesius is conspiring to stop the Egyptian grain fleet from Alexandria and rebel against Constantine's rule. Constantine, who is known for his fits of anger, gets triggered by the mention of the interruption of grain, and he goes on a tirade of all the horrible things that he would do to St. Asenesius. St. Asenesius is shocked by the accusation and tries to reason with Constantine that even if he wanted to interrupt the grain, he was just a private citizen and he cannot do it. But Constantine was too far gone. Susan Asenesius ends his defense by telling Constantine that God would ultimately judge between them. Constantine then banished St. Asenesius to Trier, Germany, at the court of his oldest son. The exile was very unusual and unprecedented that some modern historians don't even consider it an exile, more like a suspension pending investigation. Usually, when a bishop is found guilty of a moral or a political crime, he's deposed from his seat, replaced by a new bishop, and exiled to a backwater where his influence is limited and would eventually disappear quietly. But San Asenesius was not deposed from his seat. Constantine did not approve a replacement for him, and he was banished to a large city with a population more than a hundred thousand and a court to one of his heirs to the throne. In Alexandria, riots broke out demanding that San Asenesius be back, and the by now famous San Antony wrote to Constantine asking him to recall San Asenesius. Constantine was a savvy politician, so. In a letter to the Church of Alexandria and St. Antony, he explains that St. Asenesius was condemned by a church council, and he could not go against the church council based on his wishes. But he also invalidated many of the Miletian bishops' appointment by the Council of Tyre, and exiled their leader, John Arshef. In other words, he went against the same church council 
that he just said he cannot go against. Constantine's primary objective were always to consolidate power and maintain the peace of the empire. By banishing San Asenasius, he acted to maintain the peace by removing a polarizing figure that invited constant complaints. But he would not allow his enemies to fill the power vacuum, because they are just as polarizing and bound to create serious riots from the population. Thus, up until Constantine's death, the situation for the cops was highly ambiguous. San Asenasius was still the Bishop of Alexandria, but he was not allowed to come into Egypt. The Miletian influence was also checked by Constantine, and the Arian bishops were slowly legitimizing their position and influencing imperial policy for their favor, but were not there yet. Politically, Constantine had a firm grip, but his succession plan was just messy. Constantine has appointed five different Caesars, the three sons of Fasta, and two close relatives. It would be a shame if he were to die suddenly and leave that religious and political mess to be sorted out. Next week, Constantine would die and would leave a political and religious mess to be sorted out. And after a long and a great career, he finally gets baptized by none other than the most famous Arian bishop, Eusebius of Nicomedia, and his despot. I like Constantine. I would like to pick his brains in the afterlife. So I hope his baptism counts, and I live a good life. So someday, we can put this whole banishment of the calf's most beloved hero thing behind us. And with that, farewell, and until next week. Thank you.